0: Wow, thank you. So my name is Jeff. Good morning again. Um, thanks for having us. Let me just find a place to put this mic. Awesome. Oh, well, last time I was here, I think I broke the record for the amount of times I've cried in a sermon, and I'm going to try not to do that again. I'm really going to try to keep it under control, but... Man, that song was just so beautiful again, just seeing the compassion of a father who knows our name, counts our tears, hears us when we call. This is why we're here, this is beautiful. This is what it's all about, that this gospel is good news for sinners and sufferers like us. This is the word we need to hear today. So he's put uh, his word on my heart and I'm just excited to be here with you again. And I'm glad just as Church 21 and Reach get to work together, you got to meet Brian Alton last week. You're gonna meet Trenton next week, my friend coming from the South Shore to preach. I think that's next week. And uh, yeah, it's just great to work together and to see that fellowship and unity that John mentioned. So let me pray once more and open up into Mark. We're gonna continue our series in Mark, uh, going into chapter two, verses 18, all the way to 3.6. Jesus, thank you for your love today, your compassion for us today. Thank you for your word, which is such good news that we get to come to your word and we get to come and draw near to you through your word and with your presence actually here with us today. Um, Wherever we are, even online, in our homes and here together, um, you are with us. So I ask that you would speak to our hearts um, right where we need to hear it, God, that you are bigger than our devotions and you're better than our emotions you are perfect, Jesus. Help us to see you today. Amen. Let me just do this real quick and get started. So, what does your culture say about you? I don't know about you guys, but what does your culture say about you? How does your culture shape you? Last night, I'm, I'm so excited. This is the first weekend we could actually have people in our backyards. There was no curfew. I might be a little more tired today because of that. I was up. Um, past curfew in the backyard with our neighbors last night. And we had all different kinds of cultures together. We had American, Canadian, Colombian, Syrian, bringing their you know, lentils and rice and their you know, Syrian barbecue and, and different things we brought together to make a meal. And our cultures shape us. Our cultures are all unique. And even if we come from a larger cultural set, we all also have our own unique individual cultures. So even God incarnate, when he came into the world, he came into a culture. Um, He didn't enter into a cultural vacuum where nothing mattered. He came into a place at the fullness of time into a social demographic. Jesus was part of a social demographic, the Jews at his time. There was a cultural landscape. He grew up in the fabric of society in a way that any normal boy would have at that time. But Jesus was totally different. While he grew up in a strong culture, he wasn't conformed by the culture. He never conformed to the culture. He changed the culture. So rather than letting the culture shape him, he shaped the culture around him, which is a a, a lot harder for us to do. But Jesus' very presence changed the fabric of society. That's how strong Jesus' presence is. And that's what we see as we go through the book of Mark, As Jesus goes through, he's changing things all the time. And even the perceptions that people have about him, his presence is polarizing. At one time, his presence compels people in, but at other times, it repels people away. This is what Jesus' presence does. Even his parents and his family had to kind of throw out some of their expectations that they had with Jesus because his culture was all about following his father. And a lot of times, this pushed against the cultural expectations of his time. So what we see in this passage in Mark chapter 2 is uh, that those who rely on their system of religious works are the ones who are repelled by Jesus' radical grace. But it's uh, these proud people that move from what we've seen maybe last week in inquiring about Jesus. They move more to accusing Jesus and then to conspiring against Jesus, but there's others too, who are burdened by the sin of the world, and and even, you know, burdened by the demands of religion, who are drawn to Jesus' grace. They're drawn to that radical grace, and so those who are hungry find feasting and fasting in Jesus. Those who are tired find rest in Jesus' Sabbath. And those who are hurting find healing in Jesus' compassion. So, these are the things that we're gonna look at today because, you know, as followers of Jesus, we should also ask ourselves do we tend to go along with the culture or do we tend to be ones who change things in our culture? Where do we fall into this? Uh, how, how can we even do this? What are the battles worth fighting in our culture? What are the hills worth dying on in our culture as we confront things that really shouldn't be? Rather than complying with a lot of the systems in place, we should be standing up for what is right. But how do we do this? What we're going to see today, what I've seen even this morning, is how Jesus is so much bigger than our devotions, and he's so much better than our emotions. And so we see the devotional life of Jesus, and we also see the emotional life of Jesus in this passage, and it's beautiful. So let's get right into that starting with Mark chapter two, verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So this is a devotion, the devotional life of Jesus. John's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine bursts the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So the first thing we see in Jesus' culture in this scene is this situation about fasting. The subject of fasting comes up. What is fasting? We see that this was a common practice for Judaism, um, even with John's disciples and the Pharisees. It's also a common practice for, that continued in the church and Christianity as we follow Jesus. It's a means of experiencing God's grace, drawing to God's grace, worshiping him, depending on him, proclaiming that God, you are I need you more than food and water. That's why we fast from the world and we feast on God. So this was a common practice. But we see two different takes on this too in the Gospels. One with John's disciples. John's disciples, maybe they were fasting because John their prophet, their beloved friend, was uh, arrested by Herod previously and they're longing for him. Um, Maybe they're fasting in repentance as John had actually proclaimed um, to repent and fast, to uh, a baptism of confession and repentance and proclaiming a fast. But either way, they're fasting because they're longing for God. John's disciples, they're longing for God. And so fasting is a way of proclaiming that I'm longing for God. But the Pharisees fasted in a different way. And if you've read through the Gospels, we've seen this a lot of the time too. We see that the, the way that the Pharisees did their fast was really a, a public way of showing how great they were, how holy they were. Look at uh, this prayer in Luke 18. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. This, these religious works. And Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to fast, he said, don't be like the Pharisees. They do it so other people will see them for their devotion and their holy work. So this is the situation here with fasting. We have these two groups, the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, and they fast. And then you have this other group, the disciples of Jesus. And what, does, what do the people notice about the disciples of Jesus? What stands out to them? They're not fasting. That's what stands out the most is they're like, when do you fast? I don't see you fasting. The people are coming up. Why does John's disciples fast? The Pharisees fast, but we don't see the disciples of Jesus fasting. So here in this passage, Jesus says, they cannot fast. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is not saying that fasting is useless. He's not saying that it's not important. We could just do away with that. It's not relevant anymore. But he doesn't conform to their expectations of what fasting meant culturally. He confronts that. He changes that. Um, He really presents it in this new way of pointing to the feast in his presence. Because remember, fasting is longing for God's presence. And what Jesus is saying is that I am bringing you the full presence of God. You don't have to long for God when you are in my presence. You have the full presence of God with you, like the bridegroom arriving at the wedding feast. I am here. I'm here for you. This is clearly what Jesus is saying in this picture of a wedding feast, this familiar motif that he uses with, uh, you know, the bridegroom, and the, the wine and the garment, this is all a picture of what a wedding feast would have looked like at that time. So Jesus is saying um, that if you long for God's grace, and if fasting is, is, is that means of receiving that grace, then I'm bringing God's grace fully in my presence to you. Otherwise, imagine what it would be like if, uh, if Jesus' disciples were in his presence, fully enjoying him, walking with him every day, but they were fasting, longing for something better. It wouldn't work. It, it doesn't work that way. It, it's like um, the picture of the wedding that Jesus uses. Imagine showing up for this big wedding and having the expectation of a feast, but just saying, no, we're not going to feast. We're fasting today. A Jewish wedding, though, was a big deal. This would be a lot of people feasting for multiple days. This is the picture of celebration that Jesus is using. This is what Jesus is showing. He's not a party pooper. He, is, he brings the party. He brings the party. So you don't have to fast in his presence. You get to feast in his presence. I celebrated um, a wedding last summer. And even during COVID, when things are so different, the feast is so important. Even though it was under COVID, the groom had catered this meal that was individually portioned in small plates and everything because of COVID, but still the feast is important. It celebrates who's present. Imagine if, um, you know, imagine anticipating this feast that we're all invited to enjoy. And then if I refused that feast and just said, no, 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 I'm waiting for something better, that would be an insult And so that's kind of what it was like to be in Jesus' presence and to fast longing for something better. That would be an insult. But Jesus' disciples know the full measure of grace that we are all longing for, mourning for, waiting for, it's here. It's with Jesus. And Jesus just gets to unpack that with with the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees in that day. Charles Spurgeon says that You know, to prescribe fasting to his disciples while he was making them glad with his personal presence would have been incongruous and absurd. This is what Jesus is teaching his friends. It would have been incongruous because, yeah, like I said, the reason for our fasting is our longing for him. When we are with Jesus, we have no lack, we lack nothing. We don't need to long for anything, we don't need to mourn for or fast for anything when we are in his presence. Now, we are not in his earthly presence right now. So Jesus is not saying you don't ever have to fast anymore since the incarnation that's done. But he says, no, the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away and on that day they will fast. That's what we see later in Acts when Jesus ascends to the throne. His disciples respond by fasting because they're longing for him again. But that is not this time. This time they are feasting in his presence. So the disciples of John and those of the Pharisees, their cultural worldview of fasting needed to change. It needed to conform to the reality of his presence. And that's what Mark is showing us today, too. That our cultural understanding, um, our devotional life needs to conform to him, it needs to be transformed by his presence, that we should feast in his presence but we should fast in his absence. So what does your fasting say about you? We know that for the Pharisees, it says something about you. How often you fast, how sad you look while you fast. It says something about who you are, but what does your fasting say about you? Our Muslims might even say, you know, that the way you fast really says something about how devoted you are to God. God. The most strict Muslims uh, don't even brush their teeth or swallow their saliva during Ramadan because it's kind of this measurement of how holy you are. But what does your fasting say about you? What does my fasting say about me? Culturally, we're on the totally other end of the spectrum, so we need to even um, really examine our own devotional life in this way. Jesus was confronting how people were too strict on fasting, Here, I think, in our day, in our culture, we lean a lot more on on not practicing fasting. And so we need to ask, um, when is the last time you fasted? I think this is a good question for us to ask. When's the last time I fasted? But also, what did you fast from? What did you fast for? Because Jesus doesn't just give us a rule. He gives us a relationship this is the most important thing about fasting that Jesus is pointing out. He wasn't following the rules. What surpassed the rules was the relationship. That's what they couldn't understand is that Jesus wasn't following their rules. But Jesus brought a relationship, not a rule. So we get to fast in our relationship with Jesus. We're invited to follow him, not follow just regulations. So maybe... Rather than focusing on the rule of fasting, let's focus on the relationship of fasting. Rather than asking, when's the last time you fasted? Ask, when's the last time you felt your need for Jesus to the point that we have longed for him and missed him and needed him? When's the last time you felt that absence in your relationship with Jesus? That should move us to long for his presence. That should move us to fast um, in a way that draws to his grace. So we fast from food to feast on God. We are made glad by his presence. And today, fasting is a way that we can do that. We can strengthen our devotional life through our relationship with Jesus. But even as Jesus uses this illustration of the, the garment with the patch on it that tears away because it's unshrunk and the wine fermenting and the new wineskins, and it's kind of a puzzle But it really shows us um, that the gospel, this new relationship with God through Jesus, doesn't fit into our existing paradigms. It shatters them. It tears away from them. They don't work all together. We need to shatter our own cultural expectations to make room for the gospel. He's preparing new wineskins in us. He's preparing new garments for the wedding feast for us through this relationship. Now, the other area that we look at in this second, we're looking at three vignettes in the life of Jesus in the area of uh, his devotional life and his emotional life. So we see fasting, and then we're gonna see Sabbathing, and then we're gonna see this situation where Jesus does this healing. So right now we're gonna look at the Sabbath. One Sabbath, it says, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, look, So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So here we have the Pharisees. Like I said, they're moving from inquiring about Jesus to accusing Jesus before they begin to conspire about Jesus. So here they're even starting to accuse Jesus. They're pointing out and saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful? So what was the thing they were doing that was not lawful? Some people might have thought it's you know, plucking heads of grain from somebody's field of wheat. Um, but otherwise, we could also see that what they're doing unlawfully is working on the Sabbath. And so rather than drawing a point here on how they were, could be considered stealing from somebody else's harvest... Um, really the point, the issue here has to do with the Sabbath. They weren't stealing someone's grain. This was a common practice to, to be plucking heads of grain, to even for the poor when they're hungry, to glean from someone else's field. That wasn't the point here, but the issue has to do with the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are accusing Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself for breaking the Sabbath. Why was plucking heads of grain breaking the Sabbath? It's because the Sabbath is the Jewish day of rest and worship. Well, what does plucking heads of grain have to do with not resting and not worship? It's because they considered that to be work. To be plucking a head of grain and eating it was work. And so they were saying, you're not resting enough. <laughs> the Pharisees were saying to Jesus' disciples, you're not worshiping, you're not resting, you're going through this field plucking grain. Um, but this was important, uh, an important day in Jewish culture. The Sabbath is a day of rest and worship every Saturday, every week, just as God rested on the seventh day after creating the world. He, in, in the fourth command, commandment through Moses, told his people that the Sabbath is a day of rest and of worship. It wasn't some arbitrary law uh, to earn God's favor. This was very important, very important to the Jews. It was a sign that they could depend on their creator that he would sustain them. It was meant to be a blessing. And it became a strong identity marker. It's what separated Israel from every other nation. It's what set them apart. It's what made them unique in their relationship with God. Again, it was all about relationship. Even um, in Nehemiah, which we went through at REACH, we went through Nehemiah a couple years ago almost, and we saw the importance of Sabbath. I remember looking at Nehemiah 13 and we see that people have totally forgotten the Sabbath. And when Nehemiah comes in and realizes that people are doing all kinds of work on the Sabbath and they're you know, trading with merchants on the Sabbath with these four nations, he goes berserk. He, thr- he literally shuts the gates, threatens to pull out people's beards and says there will be no work on the Sabbath. We are, we are going to course correct and work on this. Uh, he says, forsaking the Sabbath is why God's wrath came upon us and what led us into um, into captivity, into exile. And now you guys are breaking the Sabbath again. This was so important in Judaism. And the Pharisees in this day were very careful to observe the Sabbath, but also to make sure that everyone else was observing the Sabbath as well, especially new leaders and new movements like those associated with Jesus. What was that communicating to the Jews for Jesus to be um, apparently breaking the Sabbath? This would be a huge confrontation, um, a huge threat to Judaism if that's what Jesus was doing. But really, Jesus was not breaking biblical law. He was not breaking the Torah law. He was breaking the rabbinic law. He was breaking their own man made laws about Sabbath. Moses never said, God never said through Moses that you cannot pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. But what the rabbis did to make sure that they obeyed the Sabbath was that they came up with 39 categories of what could be considered work. So plucking a head of grain was considered under that category of harvesting. So they were harvesting. And then even just rubbing off the husk from the grain to eat, that was considered threshing the wheat. So they had broken these two laws according to the rabbis. But this wasn't God's law they broke. This was the rabbi's law that they broke. This is why the Pharisees were so upset, because it was confronting their own authority. It was breaking their own personal laws, and they couldn't understand that. And that's why Jesus brings up this situation with David, going into the Um, Temple and eating the bread of the presence and saying, you know, using this as an example to say, look, David, the famed king of Israel, God allowed and had compassion even when he was in need. And you have more concern for your own um, personal man-made law than you do for God's own law. Um, You have more contempt for me breaking your law than for someone else breaking God's law. So it was hypocritical. That Jesus uh, was pointing out for the Pharisees. You know, for us to understand what the Sabbath might be like, it, it's really occurred to me what a picture we have here with the restrictions that we've been living in with COVID. This is our first weekend without a curfew. This is our first weekend where people are allowed in our backyards, and we realize what an amazing thing that is now. We get to celebrate that and embrace that and uh, enjoy that. Um, Things are opening up. We can stretch our arms. We can breathe a little bit more. And after so many times back and forth with all the waves and all the lockdowns, it gets harder and harder and harder to live with these restrictions. It gets harder to follow. Now imagine if Legault said, every Saturday is going to be a lockdown. You are not allowed to leave your home. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to be with people. You're not allowed to do anything. We would, I'd give up. I would give up. It would be too much. But imagine if someone, okay, imagine you go to work on Monday and your boss says, I want you to stay home. I want you to rest. I want you to enjoy your day. Well, that would be an open invitation. There's such a difference between being told you can't leave your home and the invitation to say, you don't have to leave your home. This is the difference that we see in the Sabbath. It, it, what was meant to give us rest was used as a tool to oppress. What was meant to be a blessing had become a burden. And so being told not to work is not supposed to be a punishment. It's supposed to be a blessing for us. Being told to stay at home is not just a punishment. It's not purposeless. It's meant for your own good. This is what Jesus was uh, showing the Pharisees and his disciples, confronting the culture of that time to say, this is a sign of our relationship that you get to depend on God, that you get to rest. Not that we're going to scrupulize every area of that. So we too, we need to grow in our devotions to God through things like practicing the Sabbath. He doesn't just give us a rule. He gives us a relationship. So let's walk with Jesus on the Sabbath. um, Asking, how do we Sabbath? How do you Sabbath? This is a good question to ask yourself this week. How do you Sabbath? As a community of Christ followers, we should embrace this better than anyone. We We should be experts in resting and worshiping on a day off or a time set aside. But... You know, like I said with fasting, our problem is probably not that we're being too strict with Sabbathing, but that we're being too lax, that we kind of ignore it, that we use our time off either for our own selfish labor or our own selfish entertainment. Really a good lens to think through for looking at how we can Sabbath is asking, is it rest and is it worship? Think of your time off, think of your Saturday, think of your Sunday and ask, is it rest, is it worship? then let's do that. Let's plan our whole day with things that are restful and worshipful and do this as an invitation to rest, not a tool meant to oppress us, but to rest us. So then, let me go into this final point here um, where we see Jesus enter the synagogue. Again, we're looking at the Sabbath, but we're moving from the devotional life of Jesus to the emotional life of Jesus. And guys, this is where I've seen just God really press on my heart the amazing compassion of Jesus that we see in the face of his anger. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. The Pharisees were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the sabbath here's another time where they're looking for him to break the sabbath why so that they might accuse him and he said to the man with the withered hand come here and he said to them he said to the Pharisees he said to the Jews is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to kill they had no answer they were silent He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out, and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. What makes you angry? What makes Jesus angry? The difference between what makes us angry and what makes Jesus angry is, is hard to explain. Um, but we know that our anger is, is completely tainted by sin. But Jesus, in this scene, in his anger, was totally righteous. So we see the Pharisees move from inquiring to accusing to conspiring. And here's what this looks like. Breaking the Sabbath continues to be their point of contention. But this time, rather than settling things out back in private, Jesus settles things in public before the Pharisees. He makes a public mockery of the Pharisees and their untenable religious demands his polarizing presence is no longer hidden but fully demonstrated and on their turf an affront to their authority in their synagogue Jesus pulls out all the stops when in the synagogue while the Pharisees are waiting with bated breath to accuse him Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to stand before him He then lays out for them a dreadfully exposing question to which they have no response. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Already knowing that they would rather omit the well-being of this poor man over committing an act of work or healing on their Sabbath observance, Jesus equates their neglect for saving life with the act of taking life. To do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill, the room is tense and now his anger is visible as he looks about the room and he performs this healing. He says, stretch out your hand as a scathing judgment on the deadness of their hearts. And the mic drops and they, they walk out of the room. They begin to conspire against him, how to destroy him. They follow with the Herodians. They, these were their enemies. The Jews and the Herodians were enemies, but now they have a new mutual enemy in Jesus. But guys, when we see that Jesus was angry, we see the heart of God in the emotional life of Jesus. Though we see his righteous anger on one hand, in Jesus we also see that God's heart throbs with pity and compassion for the man with the withered hand, the man who is poor, the man in need, the man who has been oppressed. And this is perfect Unfiltered, unrestrained anger and compassion. Compassion is normally what we think of when we think of Jesus. That's the uh, emotion most commonly attributed to Jesus. But we have to also consider his anger. And this passage shows us Jesus angered. Jesus was angry. Jesus looked at them with anger. He was grieved by their hardness of heart. So let's look at Jesus' anger in the emotional life of Jesus. Um, Puritan writer B.B. Warfield says that it would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. And Dane Ortland, he says in uh, his book Gentle and Lowly, A compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him, the severity and human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. So Jesus had to get angry at them. He says, it is the father who loves his daughter most whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. So we see the picture of a loving father here in Jesus. I'm sorry that I'm a mess. The compassion that Jesus has toward this man rises his anger towards those who have oppressed him. Jesus did not generally die for your general salvation. Guys, Jesus, he specifically worked in his life and in his death for your specific deliverance. Jesus identifies with the specific moments in the depths of your sin and suffering. And like a surgeon, he channels his anger and wrath with acute precision to heal. So, again, I got to pull a couple quotes here that just hit home. B.B. Warfield, he, he writes about Jesus' anger when he rose Lazarus from the grave but it can be applied here in Mark 3 as well. He says that inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into this world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. This miracle becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What Mark does for us here is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. He has won your salvation, not in cold unconcern. But in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, He has felt for us and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings, He has wrought out our redemption. So, we see Jesus' amazing compassion for us with His anger towards the enemy. He loves you that much. You're the man. Thank you so much, Steve. I had to break my record. But this isn't just an isolated incident that happened when Jesus was present in his earthly ministry going about healing people. This continues today. Jesus, one amazing implication of this truth of Jesus' permanent humanity is this that when we see the feelings and passions and affections of the incarnate Christ towards sinners and sufferers as given to us in the four gospels, we are seeing who Jesus is for us today. The son of God has not retreated back into the disembodied divine state in which he existed before he took on flesh. Jesus is still alive today with his Heart of love and compassion beating for you in your sin and in your suffering. But for too long, Christianity has not embodied the affections of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus like he shows us towards us. For too long, Christianity has been associated with being really complicit in systems of oppression rather than freeing people from oppression, that we do stand for that. From racism in, in the Americas to the residential schools of Canada that were associated with the church, Catholic and Protestant, to even the hungry and the homeless today. My neighbor Scott is an example of this. He's received the brunt of prejudice as a recovered addict, having been homeless for over a decade, he has suffered. And he's seen some of this oppression. He's heard some of the chastising remarks from the religious proud and I'm among them. Some of our neighbors that we would deem undesirable neighbors are the ones who God has the most compassion for them. He draws near to the humble, but he resists the proud. We have to confess and repent from our own prejudice from our own pride. But the Pharisees were blind to this. They translated it hardness of heart, but this could have been translated blindness of heart or even deadness of heart. And we are blind too. We need new eyes. My friend Sam Whitehawk, he says this. Here's what we need to do. When we're dealing with people who have had religion weaponized against them, The gospel needs to be that much more clear as to who Jesus Christ is in all of his beauty and all of his glory and grace. For those who have experienced the oppression of religion, they need to be shown the beauty of religion. So what this looks like for us to be showing people this beauty is gonna be different individually. But let's go out and practice this. Um, I gotta wrap up here. This is, I'm so sorry. Um, so sorry for you guys listening at home. But uh, we got to deal with this. So, guys, we got to start bringing the gospel presence out into our world. Here's what Jesus did. Where is this? The culturally accepted narrative was on the side of the Pharisees. They used their influence to prop themselves up while oppressing others. But Jesus, making a profound example of this man, Employs a method of counter storytelling. As Christians, we must tell a different story. He confronted injustice and brought healing through telling a different story, not the story told from the top down, but from the bottom up. Telling the story of the man with the withered hand changed the social fabric of his day. This is the story we need to carry out into our lives. This changes the moral fabric of our soul, and then it changes the social fabric of our world. We carry this gospel out in our presence, walking in relationship with Jesus. So um, let me just close with uh, this, just some final points to summarize. This The Pharisees, they moved from inquiring about Jesus to accusing Jesus to conspiring about Jesus, to conspiring Jesus against him. We are invited to fast and to feast with Jesus. We're invited to rest with Jesus. We are invited to, to be healed with Jesus and then to carry that healing out into our world. We invite the hungry to fast from the world and to feast on God. And our community, our church, should be a heavenly foretaste of what that feast is gonna be like. We invite the weary to find their rest in Christ and the way that we Sabbath should be a cultural apologetic to our world. And even though our emotions are bound in sin, we walk in the spirit of Christ who moves with a full, perfect, balanced range of emotion, emotional power. And even in his compassion for sinners and his anger towards sin, we stand for Christ even when it costs. Jesus, thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your... uh, your love. Thank you for uh, bringing us not religion, but a relationship. You humble the proud and you raise up the humble. And so I pray that you draw our hearts in to you today. Shatter our own cultural misconceptions, please, and fill us with your spirit. We need you, Jesus. Amen.